0: You know, there's some things I forgot to tell you guys, and they're really important. Number one, he hates bright lights, we know that. But you got to keep him out of the sunlight. Sunlight will kill him. Number two, keep him away from water. Don't give him any water to drink. And whatever you do, don't give him a bath. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and joining me for episode 10 is the star of Gremlins, yes the owner of Gizmo himself, Zach Galligan. Anybody that knows me or has listened to my other podcast, Skip to the End, will know my love and obsession with the 80s, especially the 80s films. And Gremlins for me is very high up there as one of my favourite films of all time. So to be able to sit down with the star of the film and talk all things Gremlins is a dream come true. This interview didn't come easy and it's been about a six month wait. But hey, it's all done, it's edited and I'm ready to show you all. But just before I do, I want to give a big thank you to Dominic Burns, who's basically helped me get this interview. Without him, I wouldn't have been able to go on set and meet Jason Mewes and produce that episode, Brian O'Hallowan, and now obviously, Zach himself. So a massive thank you to him. But also, you've heard his name mentioned quite a few times. So the good news I want to share with you all now is he will be on an upcoming episode of Mark and Me. It's all recorded and it's some of the best stuff I've done, so I'm really looking forward to you all hearing that. As I said, Gremlins is one of my favourite films. Growing up, I was obsessed. When I say obsessed, I mean I still am now. But, hey, it was that film that scared me as a kid. I was terrified when they actually turned into these eggs and hatched into these really horrible gremlin creatures. But it also made me laugh. And like any kid growing up, all I wanted for Christmas or my birthday was to be given a mogwai. All I wanted was to be Billy and have that Christmas present or birthday present of this cage with a little gremlin in but hey spoiler it didn't happen and it's depressing but I got over it and I've been able to sit down now and talk all things gremlins with the man himself so without further ado here's my interview with Zach Gallagher. I hope you all enjoy So, my first question today for you, Zach, is Did you want to be an actor when you were very young and you were growing up? I think I
0: did. I'm not sure that I really believed that being an actor was possible when I was younger, and then it kind of fell in my lap, really. I mean, I went to a a school in Manhattan, a high school in Manhattan. It was very centrally located. So casting directors, if they were looking for teenagers, they would come to our school because it tended to have the kind of jacket and tie, you know, boarding school type, even though it wasn't a boarding school, it was a day school, but had boarding school type students. So, uh, you know, I'd been in school plays and and camp plays and, and all sorts of theater since I was literally about six or seven years old. And then after about 10 years of doing that, I noticed that people started coming to my school and, and asking, you know, for applicants to audition for actual film and television projects. So eventually one day a casting director came in and my drama teacher recommended me and I tried out and I did very well, although I didn't get the part. So to answer your question, I mean, I really wanted to do it, but I thought it was just a dream until it suddenly started showing up in my backyard and then it, it really really became less like a dream and much more like something that was, um, you know, legitimately possible to
1: do. Amazing. So very early in the start of your career, a movie that I'm a big fan of, Nothing Lasts Forever, came out. How was that experience?
0: Oh uh, Well, you know, I was 18 at the time. I was a senior in high school. And, and now all of a sudden I'm doing the lead in a movie that's being produced by, you know, Lauren Michaels, who was, who was and actually is still at Saturday Night Live. You know, and Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and John Belushi were in it. Now, of course, Belushi passed away before, you know, they, the production got started. But when, when I was auditioning for it, he was slated to be in it as well. People kind of forget at the time, in 1982, Murray, Aykroyd, Belushi were like, they were it. I mean, they, they were absolutely the biggest American comedy stars you could think of at the time. I mean, there were the Blues Brothers, for God's sake, and 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 stripes and meatballs and everything like that. I mean, it was it was lunacy. So when I got the part, I was simultaneously unbelievably excited and absolutely terrified because I knew full well that I barely knew what I was doing, and I really just had to, you know. Luckily, I kind of naively trusted in the director's ability to steer me through the. The, the project. And of course, Tom Schiller did a very nice job, but I think he was kind of, you know, learning how to direct actors at the same time that I was learning how to act for the camera. So it was, it was unbelievably thrilling, and probably getting that part was the biggest jolt of adrenaline maybe I, I've ever had in my life, even more so than Gremlins, because Gremlins was kind of like, Gremlins was kind of the second time, so the first cut is the deepest. So That first first role that you get that really you know is going to make some kind of an impact even though it ended up not making any impact it's it's pretty mind-blowing
1: yeah no one can take that away can they the first time you see your name in the credits on the big screen it must have been like yes this is a taste of it you know
0: yeah well it was very surreal because your name pops up first and then and then it's just with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd you're just
1: Did you think at that point you might wake up from a, a, a really mean dream that teased you? Well, right about the time when I was
0: getting super excited about it, it kind of became clear that it was going to get shelved because they didn't really know how to market it. But, of course, right around that time was almost exactly the time that I got Gremlins. So you got to realize, when you're 19, you're like, I did this one movie, and now I'm doing this Spielberg movie. Oh, well, the first one's not coming out. Oh, well, that's okay. I have the second one. And I'll do 17 more movies... Every year after that, you know, you think it's just going to endlessly roll onwards because what do you know? You know, you're, you're booking a movie every 10 months. So obviously you're doing something right. So why would it ever end? And, of course, the answer was, well, when you turn 22 and every single person in the planet gets out of drama school and suddenly instead of competing with the same 10 people, you're now competing with an extra thousand people. Well, that's when it starts to slow down and end when suddenly you're not the only person who can do this. Now there's all sorts of people with, with training and expertise who you're now competing with instead of the same eight
1: dude. Yeah, it's 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 quite scary, isn't it? And it's obviously since time's gone on and many years ago since then it's probably just got worse and worse and even more of a challenge. So to even get spotted nowadays must be just a success in itself. Well I, I
0: wonder, if I hadn't, you know, been asked by casting directors at 17, if I'd just gone to college and come out and tried to be an actor, which I probably wouldn't have, but if I had tried at 22, like most of the other people had, would I really have made it? I don't know. You know, maybe I
1: wouldn't have. We obviously mentioned the big ticket movie itself uh, just a year after that of Gremlins 1. How did that come about? I mean, was it just a, a case of going for an audition for the film Gremlins or were you linked with someone that kind of told you about this part that was coming up because it just seems a huge, huge production and with the people involved at that stage to kind of, like your second movie is just mind-blowing.
0: Well, I think what happened is, you know, I'd done this lead in this movie for, with Saturday Night Live people and In the business, I think that put me on everybody's radar right away. They're like, who is this kid? We never even heard of this kid. So that put me on a lot of the studio lists. And then once you get on the studio lists, really for the next two or three years, and I wish somebody had told me this at the time, but for the next two or three years, you get to go up for every single good project that comes down the pike, and you have to kind of follow it up with something or else you fall off the list. Of like getting into a club and then after two hours if you don't say something witty the bouncer comes and throws you back out onto the street
1: <laughs> i love that so, example
0: so yeah it's like you're sitting there it's like sir you haven't done anything interesting and in two hours get the fuck out of here and they just throw <laughs> you out into the sidewalk yeah so i'd gotten on i think everybody's radar so that pretty much guaranteed that i was going to go for a lot of good stuff which i did i went up for all sorts of amazing things back then, you know, like War Games and The Outsiders and uh, Breakfast Club. And um, yeah, basically, I think the key thing was getting that first movie put me on the lists of people to see that the studios wanted to see. And then it was just like uh, I went in and read for the casting director. She was like, great. Came back the next day, read for the producer. Should have read for Joe Dante as well. He was sick from uh, he was plane sick because he hates to fly. So he couldn't make that one, so I read for the producer. The producer was like, great, can you come in for the mix and match? I was like, when's that? He's like, the next day, or maybe it was two days later. Can't really remember. I was like, you know what? I'm kind of leaving for Fort Lauderdale on that day for like spring break. You know, I have a flight at like noon. And they're like, well, can you come in at like 10? I was like, yeah, sure. So I was one of the first people to come in that morning. And when I walked in, There was Stevie Cates, who I had auditioned with before on a a couple of other things. Although, uh, oddly, I I did not go up for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. My guess is I I just missed that movie. I just didn't get there in time. And so I walked in and I saw her. And she was like, hey, because she recognized me from something else we had read for a couple of months earlier that neither one of us got. You know, which is part for the course. Most people don't get the movies they read for. You know, you get one out of every... 20, unless you become huge, and then people start offering you stuff. So I walked in, and she was like, what's going on? And I was like, oh, hey, cool. I hope we're reading together. And she was like, do you want to run the lines? I'm like, sure, we'll run the lines. So I sat down, I ran the lines with her, and wouldn't you know it, the door opened, and the casting director popped her head out. She was like, Zach, Phoebe," you know, like we were paired next. We looked at each other like, well, I guess this is it. And I think, I, I you know, you're talking... 34 years ago, so my memory is a little sketchy, but I think we had managed to go through the scene like a time or two, something like that, time and a half. We we definitely run it through at least once so that we had kind of an idea what the other person was going to do. Then we got called in and we just did it and had fun and it was easy for me to pretend I had a crush on her because I had a crush on her.
1: Who didn't at that age?
0: Uh, No one I've ever met.
1: (laughs) I read somewhere that Spielberg saw this chemistry and just thought it was so sincere, and hearing you admit that you had a crush on her must have been effortless to portray that smitten eyes and smitten smiley face being in front of such a beautiful actress as Phoebe as herself.
0: Yeah, and you know, at the time, she's about six months older than I am, but at the time we were essentially the same age. So it's perfectly okay for me to be Gaga over someone who's my own age. You know, it's, it's not like a fifty-year-old dude, got, you know, leering over a nineteen-year-old. Yeah, I was nineteen too, so I was like, "Oh my God, look at this woman standing next to me!" You know, young woman. Because even though she was nineteen, she kind of looked more like sixteen. In person, she had a very she still has a very youthful quality about her. There was nothing there was nothing about her that really seemed like she seemed, at the time, even though she was a young woman, she kind of seemed more like a girl. You know, she had like a ponytail, and she had, she had like the jeans with the little zippers down by the ankles, Yeah. and she had this new, new this new kind of sneaker, uh, or as you call them in England, trainers. <laughs> yeah. She had this, this new kind of, uh, new kind of trainers that I'd never heard of before in my life. I said, what are those? She goes oh, it's this new brand called Reeboks. I was like, Reeboks? What are those? <laughs> that just gives you an idea of like how long ago it was.
1: You're looking at these trainers thinking, I wonder if they will ever take off or not. I've never heard of Reebok. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I swear to God, I remember
0: thinking to myself like, oh, that's some trendy thing that you know girls wear that won't last or whatever. You know, I really do remember thinking something like that. So, um, you know, so yeah, apparently, I mean, I've never spoken to Spielberg about it, but I've spoken to Joe Dante about it because, you know, every time I get a part, even nowadays, I'll come up to the people who hire me and say something along the lines of, Hey, I'm just curious, you know, how did, what did I do to get this part? Because obviously whatever you're doing, that's correct. You want to continue to repeat it. You know, you want to reinforce your good habits. So, um, you know, I said, what did I do to get this role? Well, that's what I asked Joe Dante. And he goes, well, you guys just really had good chemistry. And uh, and he goes, actually, do you remember at the end of the audition when the scene was over and you put your head on Phoebe's shoulder and kind of sighed a little bit? I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that because I didn't know what to say. And, you know, a lot of times instead of calling cut, the director would just let the scene kind of play out, see what what little extra bits and pieces the actors will give them at the very end because as an actor, you're instructed to keep working and working and working until you hear the cut signal. Yeah. So if nobody calls calls cut, you seriously should just keep acting and start improv and conversing and everything, you know, for five minutes to, you know, an hour until the person finally says, okay, we can stop. So we got to the last line and Joe just didn't call cut. I guess he wanted to see what was going to go on. And so I didn't, We were standing shoulder to shoulder. I didn't really know what else to do. So I just kind of looked at the camera, like right into the lens, and kind of put my head on her shoulder and went like, sigh, like, look at this beautiful woman that I'll never, ever have a chance to get in a billion years. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Something kind of like that. And apparently, Spielberg saw that, according to Judge he saw that, and he said, oh my God, look at that. He's in love with her already. I don't need to see anything else. Wow. He didn't even see... Any of the other couples, they were on
1: the rest of the tape once they saw that. That's an incredible story. So at this point, obviously, you're the young age of 19. You're on set with some very, very big established actors. How, how was it kind of being on your first day and seeing these really good actors that have been in the business many years? It must have been a bit of a, a head fuck. You must have been like, shit, this is this is really happening. Well,
0: after Nothing Lasts Forever, I'd also done a... TV movie called Prisoner Without a Name, Cell Without a Number, where I played Roy Sider and the great Norwegian actress, Liv Ullmann's son. And in the movie, along with Roy Sider and Liv Ullmann, were Terry O'Quinn and Trini Alvarado and Sam Robards and all of these people who were kind of hot in the early uh, early 80s. So. Between Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Imogene Coca and Eddie Fisher and Sam Jaffe and Roy Sutter and Lee Volman and et cetera, et cetera, Terry O'Quinn and everybody, by the time I got to Gremlins, there was really nobody on the set that intimidated me because there was, you know, there really aren't a lot of big names, you know? I mean, like, for example, Judge Reinhold is Phoebe's friend from, from Fast Times. She was like, wait, you mean Judge? He's awesome. You know? So that... I relaxed about Polly Holiday I'd seen on Flow but after working with the guy from Jaws you're really going to be intimidated by Polly Holiday No. so basically once you had worked with people like Murray and Ackroyd and, and and Hollywood legends like Sam Jaffe and, and, and stuff like that I, I would go so far as to say once I was 19 I, I have not been intimidated by anybody else since those formative experiences I've never been intimidated by working with anybody because what you eventually realize is they're just really hard-working people who've just attained a lot of success but at the end of the day they're essentially just people my guess is even if like I had a scene with Meryl Streep I right now I'd just be looking forward to it I wouldn't be like oh my god I have to work with Meryl Streep it's so scary I just you just get used to it
1: that's awesome that's really cool to hear so Gremlins for me is one of my favorite films of all time and what was it like being on set working with these creatures and the, you know, avoiding the animation and keeping these mechanics in place and having them in the bag and having controls with you? It must have been very unique.
0: There was no CGI back then that they could even do, um, at least for the first one. The only shot in the movie that isn't what, what we call animatronics or practical effects is the shot where you see all the gremlins spill into town for the first time, which is stop-motion yeah. animation which is essentially like claymation. yeah. By the time we got to the second one, there still wasn't really CGI to speak of, or trust me, they would have pushed for it because it's so much cheaper. I I can tell you this, everything we did in Gremlins 1 and 2 was the cheapest way to do it, or the only way to do it. The only way that Joe Dante has resisted anything has been in the last 10 or 15 years, when he's resisted doing a Gremlins 3 because he hates CGI so much and thinks that it won't really work. Um, You know, now that Chris Columbus seems to have grabbed hold of the Gremlins franchise, at least according to IMDb, if you look at the IMDb listing and some of his interviews, that seems to be what's happening. I think you'll probably see, if they do a Gremlins 3, I can't imagine they wouldn't do CGI, at least for the Gremlins themselves kind of like the apes for the planet of the apes. Yeah. I think there's a decent chance a decent chance although not definitive I think there's a decent chance you could have practical
1: effects for gizmo. There was quite a uh, unnatural gap between Gremlins 1 and Gremlins 2 was this something to do with Joe Dante being reluctant to kind of go back and do another one or was it cast problems or filming budgets? What was it that was made it such a delay? Joe Dante
0: starts with the script they kept sending him scripts that Warner Brothers came up with Gremlins in Vegas Gremlins I can't remember doing something else Uh, the Gremlins in Vegas one is the one concrete example that I remember
1: For me, Gremlins has now become a go-to Christmas movie and most of us in the UK and, you know, the Prince Charles in London and stuff does it as a Christmas film, that and Die Hard. What's your kind of thoughts on it becoming the kind of unconventional holiday traditional movie now? I think the fact
0: that Gremlins has morphed into a Christmas movie is probably the best thing that ever happened to it. I think it guarantees anywhere from another 10 to 50 years of longevity. It, it has a, a kind of timeless quality to it. I, I think that if it hadn't morphed into a Christmas movie, maybe they wouldn't even be thinking about Gremlin 3 because it would have ceased to become relevant culturally. But the fact that it and Die Hard and other films have become these so-called sort of subversive or unconventional Christmas movies, as you call it, thanks to the internet, uh, is Absolutely, the best thing that that ever happened to the film. And I always thought that releasing it in June was clever, but I never really understood why they didn't release it around Christmas. To be
1: honest, you've mentioned a couple of times on this interview, Gremlins Three, and it's like you said, you see on IMDb, you hear rumors all the time. It's not going to be a reboot. I've heard. Is it going to be around the lines of kind of like Jurassic World, where it'll be? Still touching upon the original, or do you think they'll completely forget about the original and just make it this own story within itself? Or I just, it seems a bit all up in the air, and you're going to know better than anyone.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. Every time I talk about this, I get attributed in the article as like leaking details. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, I'm merely repeating what Chris Columbus says in interviews that you can pull up, that any person can pull up on the web. What he said in, in one particular interview is that it's a part three that it takes place in current times that it references the at least the first movie. I'm not sure whether it'll reference the second movie because he didn't have anything to do with it and I, it's difficult to glean what his opinion of the second one is provided that it wasn't really his baby. The first one was really his baby. Um, So it's definitely a part three. It's not a reboot. Takes place in modern times. And the other thing that he said is that it it will have, quote, some old characters and some new characters.
1: It's such a tease, isn't it?
0: Well, of course. I mean, the guy's a good salesman, so that's what you want to say. You want to get people intrigued by it and whatnot. So, I mean... That kind of, you know, and then the other thing that he discussed is that, and this was all right around a couple of years ago, I think it was April 2015, when he discussed the first Force Awakens trailer came out, where he saw Han and Chewie for the first time in like so long, Yeah, and he talked about that, he said he saw that and he cried. He said he was in a cinema and, well he didn't cry, but he said like a tear came to his eye, you know, he got misty. And he really realized the power of nostalgia. And he said that that's what he wanted to incorporate into a Gremlin 3. So, you know, you have to ask the logical question, which is, what is it from the first Gremlins that if you showed people,
1: they would get misty? In my head now, I'm picturing you opening a door, looking down to Gizmo and saying, Gizmo, we're home, in Han Solo's voice. That that would be the ultimate trip back to the 80s. Right,
0: but it's it's kind of interesting that the first thing you said was me and Gizmo.
1: Yeah. Now now you're teasing me too much.
0: (laughs) I don't have any idea what's going on at all. You know, I mean, people are always stunned when I tell them this, but Phoebe and I didn't find out about Gremlins 2 until about three months before they started shooting it. Wow. So, The actors are always the last to know because really, quite frankly, you know, if I'm honest, what do they have to do? All they have to do is call me up and go, hey, three months from now, are you free? And I'm like, yep. And they're like, okay, here's the money. Will you take it? I'm like, yep. They're like, good. So what's really the rush?
1: My last question for you on Gremlins. Is it true now that you did all the belching noises yourself? Because I know Michael Winslow did some of the voices for the Gremlins, but was it you that actually did all the burping? Uh... Well, what happened is
0: I, I used to, because, you know, I was, I was pretty bored and I was young and I was rambunctious. And on the first Gremlins, I would uh, drink a lot of soda. In fact, I drank so much soda that I, I needed literally about $5,000 worth of dental work when the movie was over. And uh, I would drink the, the diet soda and I would belch really loudly just to crack people up. Um, and so Joe Dante would be like, "That is Joe Dante would be like that is absolutely disgusting." It's also kind of remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when it when it came time to do my looping uh, for Gremlins Two, Joe Dante goes, "We're going to need you to do a whole bunch of lines and some this, some sound effects, some heavy breathing, running down the hallways and whatnot." I said, "Sure." And he goes, "I don't know if you're willing to do this, but we need some quality Gremlin belching, and we know you could do that." I said, "Oh yeah." I, I can do that for sure, and so he goes. Uh, okay, he goes. We'll do that. Well, we'll save that for last. So I did all of the lines, and then he said, "Okay, get your, you know, get ready." And I said, "Hold on, I need some ammunition." And so I got an ice cold Diet Pepsi or something like that out of the cooler in this in this record, sound recording studio. And I'll never forget this. Um, there were two guys at the mixing board who are in the same room with me, and I, I was about ten feet in front of them. It was one of those microphones that had kind of a circular screen in front of it. Yep. So it stopped the P's and the T's from popping. So they said, uh, "They said, uh, are you ready? And I said, you, you start rolling and tell me when and I'll, I'll drink the soda and you just point at me and I'll just let it rip. They said, okay. So they did that. I took a couple of huge gulps of soda and uh, they pointed at me and I sort of turned my back to them. And I just let it rip. I was just going like, brah, 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 brah. And I was just, I probably belched as much as I could nonstop for about 30 or 40 seconds. And then I turned around and I said, how was that? And when I turned around, the two sound guys at the mixing board just had their heads down in their hands <laughs> laughing. Just, they, were just, they, were just, they were trembling. And they didn't want... They, they, they couldn't. They didn't want to bust into laughter and ruin the take, so they literally just put their head down, like on their arms, and they were just weeping with laughter. <laughs> and Jim Donnelly was sitting right behind them. They were cracking up, and I said, "How was that?" Jim Donnelly was like, "That was uh, that was pretty impressive." <laughs> of course, he, he didn't find it as funny because he had uh, heard it a billion times, but the sound people had never heard it before. So apparently just to wrap this up, they used a lot of it in the movie and then they took the what they said was, I believe the quote was the ripest belts that they could find. And they put it into this like, um, Hollywood catalog of sound effects. Like there are some sound effects that are on sort of a generic reel that everybody uses, like a generic gunshot or a generic, uh, uh, door slam and they found this one belch to be so good that they took out the old belch and put in mine so now if you watch episodes of Seinfeld you go back and watch them whenever Kramer belches really loudly it's actually my belch from Gremlins too that they're superimposing
1: that is mind-blowing <laughs> and I'm gonna have to now go and re-watch Seinfeld just for that
0: and you can tell, if you just like, if you queue up, if you take the two discs and two TVs and put them side by side, or, or two, you can do two YouTube clips, I guess. If you queue up the scene where the bat gremlin drinks the stuff and starts belching, or the vegetable gremlin, maybe it is, and then right next to it, you queue up cream or belching, you can tell it's the exact same, uh, same
1: burp. That's a, that's a claim to fame, that is. It certainly breaks the ice at cocktail parties. <laughs> So obviously after Gremlins, you followed the movie up with a film called Surviving and you got to again work with some great talent, the amazing Molly Ringwald and River Phoenix. Now, it must have just been a never-ending, you know, all these amazing... Like you said, you worked with Bill Murray in your debut and stuff, but I see those two as absolute 80s icons, you know, to get to work with people like John Hughes and stuff. Was that a really good experience to come off the back of Gremlins for? Oh, it was one of the
0: greatest experiences of my life. And the thing is, this is so funny you picked out Molly and River because Molly had only done 16 Candles. So I was not particularly in awe of her. I was 20. She was 16. She was like a a 10th grader. I I, I didn't think anything of her. I I thought she was very, very good and very talented, but I wasn't like I'm in awe of her. She hadn't really done anything. And then River Phoenix was 15 years old. I hadn't done anything at the time except Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which was a TV movie, which I hadn't seen. So he was totally unknown to me. Now, if you want to talk about being intimidated, I'm intimidated with my mom being Ellen Burstyn, who was in The Exorcist, which is a movie that I grew up with that scared the crap out of me and was the biggest movie of all time for two years until Jaws came along. So she was the one that intimidated me. And and Marcia Mason to a lesser extent too. But everybody else, no one else on the movie even remotely intimidated
1: me, just the ladies. The Exorcist itself, that is incredible. So what about the film Waxwork, which was completely different to pretty much anything I'd seen when I was growing up. That's one of the first ones I got on VHS and put it on and it was just crazy. Was that that as fun as you'd think it would be on set?
0: Yeah, that was a really good time. Um, it was a lot of work because we had sort of a short schedule. Like I remember shooting something like maybe four or five weeks. And, uh, and the last scene with the crazy, insane battle, they came up to Tony uh, Hickox and they were like, look, you're running over budget. <laughs> and he's like, well, that's okay. We just have the battle sequence and I'll be done in three days. And they were like, uh, no, you have one day to do the battle sequence. He was like, one day? I uh, storyboarded it for like 90 shots and they were like, well, guess you're going to be have a busy day and walked away. And so he had to com- compress about 90 shots into about 30 shots and shoot it all in one day. And to this day, if you see the, um, uh, the waxwork commentary that I do with him on the brand new blu-rays, which are phenomenal. Um, he talks about how he can't really watch the battle sequence because, you know, it's a shadow of what he wanted to do in his head because they just, the bond company came in, the banks essentially came in and said, we're pulling all your funds unless you finish it by tomorrow.
1: That's mental. No no pressure then at that point.
0: Well, especially if it was Tony's first movie and he was only uh, 28.
1: Jesus, man, that, that must have been horrendous. I don't think anyone got much sleep that night.
0: No, but luckily for Tony, his dad was a director, Douglas Hickox. So my guess is, and I don't know if he did this, but my guess is he could have, and his mother was an editor, Oscar-winning editor. Still is. She's still alive. My guess is he could get on the phone and go, what on earth do I do now? And his director and editor, mom and dad, could have said something along the lines of, you simply have to combine you know, shots one, two, and three with shots four, five, and six. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but yes, he was, he
1: was stressed out to the mat. So you've recently been not too far from my home in Derby, uh, working on Jason Mewes' debut, Madness and the Method. Um, filming in Derby, and uh, you're a big fan of the UK. I saw you were here in London for the Prince Charles, and are you, are you a big lover of us over here in the pond?
0: I have always been an Anglophile ever since I was a kid. Basically, from the first time I saw Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet and all the Jerry Anderson stuff and obviously the Beatles and the Beatles cartoons, all the way up through UFO and uh, Monty Python. So literally, most of the stuff that I gravitated towards in America. uh, Oh, yeah. Patrick McGowan's The Prisoner. I mean, you're talking. I was watching The Prisoner when I was five. Like, what is that? And what is happening, and why uh, do I feel incredibly uncomfortable watching this show, and mommy, is this giant white ball going to come out of nowhere and eat me? And so I was... I don't know. Have you ever seen that show?
1: I've not, but I'm going to check it out now, just from your description.
0: Yeah, you've got to see it. Anyway, almost all the culture that I truly loved was British culture, even, even over here in America. And I liked American culture, too. But I just loved... The British culture always have, it, specifically the English culture, and um, and I continue to
1: this day. So how was it then, coming back and working with Jason on his debut and working alongside Dominic and stuff? It, it, I, I attended the set for a few days and I, I thought it looked unbelievable and I thought everyone was having a blast. It felt like being part of a big family. Well,
0: I was only there, I only shot one day, but I, I, I told Dominic, who I'd worked with before, if you're going to fly me over there for one day, I need two days on either side because that trip is just a killer. And I said, and besides, I want to hang out and have fun with you guys. So he was like, no problem. So I flew over and had a kind of a day off and then I visited the set and kind of drank in the vibe and it seemed really fun. And so that that, that night, rather than being nervous, I, I couldn't wait to go to set the next day, went to next, set the next day and just had one of the better shoots of my life, just so much fun, it was just, it was like five days crammed into one, and then afterwards, I went home, I could barely sleep, I was all excited, this is just January, by the way, and then I got up the next day, I was like, what am I going to do with my free day in Derby, and I was like, you know what, the set is right down the road, I'm just going to go back to the set, (laughs) so I went back to the set, and hung out, and watched, and they actually stuck me in another scene, because I was there, and the whole thing was just in it. Yeah, it was like uh, there was a big, fun family kind of feeling to it that was really, uh, really pleasant. And I think the movie's going to be very, very good. I'm,
1: I'm excited about it. That's exactly it. I was on set. I saw Jason behind the camera, also being in front of it. Brian's part looked brilliant. There was Vinnie Jones. There was Stan Lee footage. There was Kevin Smith, uh, yourself. And I was just thinking. This film is going to be a hit. This is literally looking unbelievable, and it's not even hit the editing room yet. So I'm just so excited for the next sort of six months to see the build up. And I know Dominic's now pretty much finished the uh, first edit. So it's it's going to be really exciting to see you and all those guys back on the screen again together. Yeah,
0: and uh, I think there's a trailer coming soon. I saw I saw an early trailer that they had cut from the. imagine what the trailer will look like with all the Darby stuff put in so yeah I mean uh, you know here's the bottom line I'm probably only in the movie about seven or eight minutes but you know it's not the uh, the quantity
1: really it's the quality well I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it and uh, I'll let you go mm-hmm. shortly but I just want to know what's the future looking like for yourself obviously you might get a phone call one day saying are you available in six months we're doing gremlins free but are you doing lots of more comic cons and are you going out meeting fans and doing more screenings and have you got more work coming up in movies and TV
0: I don't have anything yet since Madness and the Method but uh, I'm you know I'm still auditioning for stuff all the time I go to conventions I'm going to convention this Friday in Phoenix Arizona and uh, I'll be I go to as diverse places as Calgary and I'm actually going to be heading over to the UK in September uh, I'm doing two conventions in September, one in uh, Gloucester and one in Northampton. So I'm still traveling around, spreading the word, and uh, and and just enjoying this part of my uh, life at the moment.
1: It all sounds really, really promising. I'll try and get down to Northampton, and I will be the first one in the screen to watch Madness and the Method. So um. I want to thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Of course, my pleasure. So there it is, the interview with Zach Gallagher himself. I just want to say a big thanks to Zach for taking the time to talk to me. I wasn't joking at the start of this episode. It really has been probably closer to 12 months coming, this interview. I didn't think it would actually happen. There's been times where I thought it would fail through, But hey, it's recorded, it's edited, you're listening to it now, it really has happened, and I just want to say a big thank you for him for taking the time to talk to me. As always, usually the best guests are the ones that take the most work and effort to get, so hey... The payoff has been fantastic and all the hard work has been worth every second. And hey, a big thank you to you all for listening. You know, I'm already at episode 10, which is crazy. This is my side project. This isn't my main podcast. You know this. Skip to the End is my main big baby. But this is a really good opportunity to sit down with some of my favourite people in the business and have some good conversations. And this won't stop. You know, I've only just got started and there's some really, really good content in the bag that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you all. I've been really, really busy the last couple of months getting as much content as I can. I've got some interviews already recorded. I've got some scheduled that I'm going to go and conduct over the next few weeks. So it's going to be very busy. But hey, that means more content for all of you out there. So thank you for tuning in. I appreciate how busy our lives are. So to take kind of 45 minutes to an hour of your time to listen to me means the world. I've seen lots of tweets on the last episode for Twin Peaks. People absolutely love Sherilyn Fenn and the interview was very, very good and I'm so happy with it. So thank you for the great tweets, the feedback on Facebook, the emails I've been getting. I've even been reading some on Instagram, so keep those comments coming. If you guys are enjoying it, I'm going nowhere. I'm going to be releasing episodes as much as I can. I plan to release my next episode in about two weeks' time. You know me by now. I'm not going to be telling you who it is. But hey, stay tuned to my social media. Go on markandme.com for all the links. I'll be back. Please stay safe and I'll speak to you all again in a couple of weeks time. Take it easy.
0: Black